All right, turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. First Corinthians chapter number 2, and we'll pick up there at verse 6, where we left off last Sunday. First Corinthians chapter number 2, beginning at verse 6, these are the words of God. Howbeit, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Which none, excuse me, verse 9, but as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man, the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. Interesting couple of verses there in the middle of chapter number 2. Very powerful statements, but also a few places that might make you scratch your head. So we want to look at this text tonight. If you recall, last week I preached a message called, How Then Shall We Preach? And we looked at the characteristics of, of biblical preaching. Well, I want to follow that up with a message tonight entitled, What Then Shall We Preach? And I don't want to focus so much on the characteristics or the form, but I want to look at the content of our message. What should the content of our message be in light of the theme of 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2? One of the great things about expository preaching that is, line by line and verse by verse, preaching through books as they are written, not just uh, haphazardly jumping around to different portions of Scripture each week. One of the blessings about preaching the Bible that way is that we get to see the progression of the biblical text as the writer weaves together teachings and arguments and admonitions and ideas to communicate a central message all under the inspiration of God. I believe that when this is the meat and potatoes of our ministry. When expository preaching is just what we do around here, I believe we get to see a side of God that we don't get to see if we're just skipping around. We get to see how God thinks over a long period of time. If I could anthropomorphize God in that way. Because obviously God doesn't think over a period of time. He has one eternal thought. (laughs) But He's revealed His Word to us. He's condescended and given His Word to us in a way that we can understand it. So, when we look at chapters 1 and 2, it's clear from the buzzwords in these chapters what the theme is of this epistle, the current theme, anyways, of this epistle. What are some of these buzzwords? Think Think of that in your mind right now. What are some of the things that we've talked about now for a number of weeks? Paul uses this word, wisdom, 28 times in the New Testament. And over half of those times are right here in the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians. Paul is making this a main attraction to this epistle. And he's doing that because the Corinthians were compulsively obsessed with this topic of wisdom. They were just infatuated with 
worldly wisdom. And Paul laid the axe to the root. The rest of the epistle, he's going to deal with fruits, bad fruits, of uh, their way of thinking. But he understands that in order to get to the heart of the problem, he has to lay the axe to the root of the tree. We need to keep that in mind in our ministry. If I can just say this as a side note. We need to make sure that we go to the heart of the issue when dealing with sin and when dealing with problems in the Christian life. It's very easy to preach on externals. I could preach a message and tell you why you shouldn't go to the movies and why you shouldn't be on social media and why you shouldn't wear something or why you should wear something, but you understand those are all externals. None of those are the actual problem. Now, as Christians, are there some movies we shouldn't watch? Yes. Are there some things we shouldn't wear? Yes. But you understand that those are all fruits. The issue is our own heart and soul and desires. And that's where our preaching needs to be. Because it's so easy to check external boxes. It's so easy to say, well, uh, I'm dressing right, so that must mean I'm okay with God. Well, I didn't watch that R-rated movie that's really popular right now, so that must mean I'm right with God. It's easy to dress right. You don't, I'd go so far as to say you don't even need the Holy Spirit to dress right. You can do that in the strength of your flesh. I don't pray every morning when I get up and put on a pair of pants. But tell me how easy it is to truly and sincerely have a modest heart. You can't do that by the strength of your flesh. You need the Holy Spirit for that. So Paul is laying the axe to the root. He, he's going right to the heart of the issue. And he's launching into this thorough, full-scale assessment of the topic of wisdom. Some things in the Bible are, are mentioned as appetizers or side dishes. And they are uh, mentioned in brief for the sole purpose of developing a major idea. But other topics in the Bible are entrees. And all of the other items on the plate are to enhance the taste and flavor and delivery of the entree. And this subject on wisdom is an entree. Paul is leaving no stones unturned. It is such an important subject that it warrants a very extensive treatment. And so as Paul gets into chapter 2, here's what he's doing. He is applying the principles of chapter 1 to his own ministry. Do you see that? Beginning in chapter 1, about halfway in chapter 1, he starts laying out a theology of wisdom and giving principles for wisdom. And then when he gets into chapter 2, he explains how he ministers the gospel in light of these principles. That's why we talked about how then shall we preach last week, and we're talking about what then shall we preach this week. In chapter 2, in verses 1 through 5, we see the form and the manner of biblical preaching. And in verses 6 through 9, where we are tonight, we see the content of biblical preaching. And then down through the end of the chapter, we see the necessity of the Holy Spirit's attendance to biblical preaching. What we should understand from this is, is, is this. The way you think and the way you view the world will always determine how you live. 
You know where the battle is in the Christian life? The battle is in the mind. You will not live a spiritual life if you are ensnared in the pitfalls of worldly wisdom and worldly thinking. And one of the chief ways that your thinking is to be shaped as a Christian is the preaching that you subject yourselves to. Now, it's not the only way. Your thinking should be shaped by your own personal devotion, by your prayer life, by your scripture reading. But one of the chief ways that God has designed for your thinking to be shaped is the preaching that you subject yourselves to. I had a professor in Bible college that told all of us, he came in one day and he said, boys, he said, you need to understand every time you go into the pulpit, you are preaching for change. Change in the congregation. You want them to leave different than the way they came in after every sermon. And again, it might not be a a very big, noticeable change. Sometimes it is. Sometimes you come in spiritually dead in trespasses and sins and you leave a new creature in Christ. But sometimes you come in with a little desire of your heart that you've been secretly praying about to God that God gave you the answer to. Nobody else even knows what God just did for you. But you preach for change. Preaching is a means of God's grace for your sanctification. That's why it's so important that you are attending to the preaching of God's Word. And so we've seen the characteristics and we've seen the form of biblical preaching. But now, we want to see the content. We want to look at the subject matter. What is the message that a biblical preacher is to preach? And this question is answered for us in verse 7. Look at verse 7 of chapter 2. But we speak, and Paul here, when he says speak, he's talking about preaching and teaching, but we speak the wisdom of God. Well, what is the wisdom of God? Well, look back at chapter 1 and verses 22 through 24. Paul says, the message of biblical preaching is the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but watch this, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. What is the wisdom of God? It is the message of Christ and Him crucified. What is the content of biblical preaching? It is the message of Christ and Him crucified. This is the message. You understand that? And everything else we say and do must be characterized by this message. It is the foundation for every other argument, command, admonition, and commendation that we could ever receive in the Christian life. It is the foundation for everything Paul says to this church throughout the rest of the epistle. As he deals with sexual sin, for instance. He says the reason why this is wrong is because you're not your own. You belong to Christ because He was crucified and He died for you. When he deals with Christians, taking other Christians to court, he said this is wrong because Christ is Lord of all. He was crucified and He was risen again. He's Lord of all. So you shouldn't be fooling around with this pettiness. Essentially, everything Paul teaches, everything we teach, should be a product of 
our conviction and our belief and our faith in the crucified Christ. And as we jump into this text, we will see Christ crucified, the wisdom of God, explained and illustrated. Explained and illustrated. So we need to ask ourselves, what is it about this message of biblical preaching? What is it about the gospel message that is so radically different than the message of that pontificating philosopher? Well, what is so different from the Christian gospel and just another self-help motivational speaker? First thing I want you to see here, we're going di- to divide it up two ways and four ways. Okay? The first thing I want you to see is the description of the message. The description of the message in verses... Two or verses six through seven of chapter two, and under that we have four subheadings. The description of the message. The first description of the biblical gospel is this: it is a discriminant message. It is a message that discriminates. Look at verse six. Paul says, "How be it? How be it?" Now he is referring back here to verse four where he explicitly distances himself from preaching man's wisdom. Do you know what he said in verse 4? He said, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. And really, Paul has kind of been slamming wisdom pretty hard in 1 Corinthians. And if you weren't paying close attention, you would think that Paul just hated wisdom. You would think that he hated anything intellectual, that he hated anything philosophical. Well, see, Paul was not against wisdom as as a whole per se, but he was against wisdom that comes from man. We see that Paul loves true wisdom. And he loves true intellectualism, which is that which we learn from the Word of God. But the Bible preacher has no time for the wisdom which comes from the world. And so Paul, kind of with a sharp sarcasm, He's going to give us an affirmation of true and real wisdom. God is not against wisdom. He is against that which man and this world thinks to be wisdom, but which is in reality foolishness. And so we see the sarcasm of Paul here. He says, how be it, we speak wisdom. You think you speak wisdom? No, no, no. We speak wisdom. It's like Paul saying, you know that foolish gospel we preach? You you know that message of of the man from Bethlehem who died on a Roman cross to save the world? That message that you think is so just idiotic? Yeah, that's true wisdom, by the way. This is why Paul, in these opening chapters, sometimes he refers to the gospel as weak and foolish, and other times he refers to the gospel as strong and wise. Why does he do that? Well, it depends on whose point of view he has in mind. When he is kind of sarcastically jabbing at the unbelievers, he says, oh, the Gospels are foolish. But when he's talking about those who are called, those who have their spiritual lights turned on, he says the Gospel is the power of God. The Gospel is true wisdom. Now notice this. He says, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, in verse 6. 
Still with a bit of sarcasm, Paul continues his explanation. See, the Corinthians believed that their human philosophies could only be handled by a special class composed of the intellectually elite. The the philosophers, they were in an upper echelon of society. And and they stoically just sat around and talked about all of these different views of the world. Paul says, well, you know what? True wisdom, it's discriminate too. There's an elite class for true wisdom, just like it is for y'all's false wisdom. And Paul says that class is for those that are perfect. Now you need to understand in the King James Version, the word perfect doesn't mean sinless, but the word perfect means those who have gotten to a certain state of development or maturity or completion. What Paul is talking about when he says them that are perfect is he's using spiritual language. This is spiritual wisdom and spiritual perfection. And the perfection that one must have to be a recipient of true wisdom is not a certain intellectual capacity or a philosophical understanding, but true wisdom is received by those who have been perfectly born again. Do you see, do you see what Paul is doing there? Who he's describing as perfect? He's just mocking this worldly frame of mind. See, the world said that those Christians, those Christians were, were fools, they were, they were rebel rousers, they were insurrectionists, and Paul says, no, no, they're perfect. And they're, they're spiritually mature. What is Paul saying? He's saying that if a man knows everything under the sun, but he doesn't know Christ, he's a fool. All the education you could ever get. You could go through every degree program down the road at Murray State. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you know nothing. But if you know Christ, you might be a high school dropout. But you know all you will ever need for eternity. That's what Paul is saying here. Those Christians who reject worldly thinking and believe upon the gospel of Christ, though this world thinks they're foolish... They're really the only ones who are truly wise. Unless this should cause us to boast, we must remember that this wisdom is only by the gracious revelation of God Himself. Amen. This is also not to say, by the way, that we are to only preach the gospel to Christians. When Paul says, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, he's not saying that I only preach to Christians. The gospel and the the message of Christ crucified must be preached to everyone. But what Paul is saying is that the reception of this wisdom discriminates between those who have been spiritually enlightened and those who sit in darkness. You know what a really good test is to gauge someone's spiritual condition? You want to know if someone is alive spiritually? then preach the truth to them and see how they respond. You know that person in your life when you're thinking, I don't know about that guy. I mean, he 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 has a credible profession. It seems like he might have a little something there. Well, just preach the truth to him. It's just to say, 
Have you heard the gospel message of Jesus Christ who came to earth and lived a perfect life and then went to the cross and became sin uh, for mankind and died a substitutionary death and was buried and was resurrected by the power of God the Father and now He sits in heaven above on high over all and He saves those He wills by His sovereign grace? And if they look at you and go, huh? Then they may never experience the true wisdom which Paul speaks about. It is a discriminant message because it is not for everyone, but it is only for those who humble themselves and flee to Christ. You you will never understand the Word of God unless you have the author living within your heart. Our message is a discriminant message. Secondly, it is a divine message. Continuing in verse 6, Yet not the wisdom of this world. Paul, Paul clarifies, immediately clarifies. He says, we speak wisdom, but it's not the wisdom of this world, nor is it the wisdom of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God. A second distinguishing characteristic of true wisdom is that it does not originate in this earthly sphere. It was not conceived in the mind of any man. It was not drawn up in any human counsel. It was not to be derived from the Stoics and the philosophers of this world. It is the message that is foreign to the thinkers of this age. Not the wisdom of this world. And then he speaks of this group that he'll mention again later. He says, nor of the princes of this world. And I want you to understand that this phrase, the princes of this world, it is in general, a reference to all of those who are the intellectual and religiosity leaders of their day, but it is a direct reference to the Jewish leaders of the first century. And we know that because in verse 8, when we get there, we'll see that this same group is credited with the guilt of the crucifixion. What Paul is saying is that the most intelligent, genius, brilliant, Minds that have ever lived could never formulate a message that is as wise as this message of true wisdom. The most religious zealots, the most pious of the pious, could never draft a scheme of redemption in all of their religiosity. None of the religions of this world that come from the hearts and minds of man could ever hold a candle to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This message of true wisdom, the gospel of Christ crucified, is a message that could have only been designed by the one true and living God. It is divine in its origin. It came not from the counsels of men, but from the eternal counsel of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. And the beauty of this message, the power of this message, the transcendency of this message demands this to be so. Notice he comments on worldly wisdom and he says that the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of the princes of this world at the end of verse 6, it comes to naught. This is the dividing line between the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. All things that originate from the feeble mind of fallen man are doomed from the very beginning. Every empire that man builds will ultimately fall. Every idea that man comes up with will ultimately crumble. 
Everything that man has originated has ultimately failed. And by conforming to the wisdom of this world, it's as if man is issuing his own death sentence. When you you see that all of the philosophies of man have ultimately failed and will ultimately come to naught, why would you live by worldly maxims? Do you see, it's it's utterly stupid for Christians to go to the world which is perishing to figure out how to live. Why would you follow after worldly thinking and worldly ideals when you know that they will lead to death? It's like abandoning this ocean of grace to go and draw water from an empty well. Your thirst will never be quenched and you will ultimately perish. And so much as you hold on to worldly thinking, your spiritual life will be stunted. Because worldly wisdom and the wisdom of God are mutually exclusive. They are incompatible. This is what Paul was trying to drive home to the Corinthians. He was saying that you will never climb the first rung of the ladder of Christianity until you abandon worldly wisdom. And so I say to you, until you get your nose out of the newspaper and put it in the Word of God, you'll make no progress in sanctification. Until you quit thinking like the world and start thinking the way the Word of God tells you to think, you'll never reach any kind of potential in the service of Christ. That's step number one. What would... If if you were to ask... If, if, let's say if I were to ask five of your closest friends what are the three biggest values of his or her life? What would they tell me? Would they say well he loves the Lord with all his heart he wants to serve Jesus Christ and he wants to live a life pleasing to God would they tell me something like that? Or would they be surprised to know that you even attend church? If I said, you know, actually, he reads his Bible. He comes to church. What? I don't know the answers to those questions, but you do. Think about them. Verse 7. We speak the wisdom of God. All the plans, philosophies, principles, and religions of man will come to naught. Only God's wisdom and God's plan and God's message shall stand. If you want to find life, you must look to the Word of God. Only Christ and Him crucified will satisfy the desire of your heart. Only that message which belongs to God and comes from God can reach the depths of your soul and save you from your sin. We must ensure that everything we do as Christians is rooted in the revelation of God and is consistent with the message of the Gospel. Paul is calling them to an entire sold-out commitment to the things of God. If I preach anything else besides this Gospel, not only am I wasting your time and making a mockery of the Lord's pulpit, but I am actively contributing to your damnation. There's plenty of places we can go for entertainment throughout the week. I'm not against entertainment. Believe it or not, 
I have a somewhat of a social life myself. I know you think I'm lame, but let me promise you, I'm lamer than you think. But this is not social hour. This is not sit around and talk about the foolish things of the world hour. And if you live your life in accordance with this wisdom of the world that Paul talks about, your life will come to naught. Nothingness. Nothingness! Do you want to know how to go down in eternity as a nobody to God? Just follow whatever the world's doing. So what then should we preach? Preach a message of divine origin. Thirdly, our message is disclosed. It's disclosed. What does that mean, to disclose something? It means you unveil it, right? You reveal it. Well, what does Paul say? Verse 7, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom. Now, if you're going to understand the revelation of the new covenant, you must understand the concept of mystery. It is all throughout the New Testament. Paul speaks of the mystery of the New Testament, the mystery of the church, the mystery of the gospel. What is he talking about? Well, he's not talking about some spooky secret that nobody knows about. Rather, what a mystery is in the biblical sense, it it is a truth that was hidden in the Old Covenant. It was a truth that was only there in types and shadows, but now in the New Testament it is manifested. It is something that cannot be discerned by the natural man. Just like man has no ability to produce the gospel message, He is equally unable to discover or discern the gospel message on his own. No one believes the gospel because they just happened to walk into a church service and hear it preached. No one believes on Christ because they just happened to open up their Bible and read about Jesus. You can attend church all your life. You can listen to 10 sermons a day. You can read the Bible cover to cover. But unless God uses those means and penetrates your heart, you'll never understand this mystery. A mystery is a message that must be revealed by God. And Paul here, he's talking about the wisdom of God. So what is he talking about? Christ crucified, right? In what way is Christ crucified a mystery? Well, it's not to us, is it? But it was in the first century. Because if, you, if all you had was an Old Testament and you were living in 60 AD and you were reading through this Old Testament, what would you know about God? What would you know about redemption? Well, you would know that there must be a punishment for sin. You would know that there must be a payment for sin. You would know that God was going to provide that payment. You would know that a Messiah was coming to save His people. You would know all of these things, but who that person was? Where he was to come from? Well, you would know that because it prophesies that he's going to come from Bethlehem. But who he was exactly? The manner of his death exactly? His name? His miracles? These things would have been a mystery to you. And what Paul is saying is that with the coming of Christ, that mystery is revealed in Jesus. He is the fulfillment of that mystery. And this gospel, this mystery has always been the message whereby men and women have been saved. The, the God has chosen to reveal these details progressively, however. Does that make sense to you? 
mankind from the Garden of Eden has been saved by faith in the promises of God. But God has revealed more and more promises. If you would have told Adam in the garden, Adam, to be saved, you need to believe on Jesus. He would have said, well, who's Jesus? Right? But Adam still needed saving faith to be saved. But now here we are on this side of Calvary, and Jesus has been openly manifested and set forth as the centerpiece of God's promises, therefore saving faith in the new covenant means believing upon Him. Those types in the Old Testament, they were shadows of the coming of Christ, but now He's been revealed openly. Christ was in the Old Testament concealed, but in the New Testament revealed. And so this is the sense of the hidden wisdom, the the mystery of God's wisdom. But you understand that there's still some things that are, that are mysterious to us even in the New Testament. For instance, can any of you explain to me how God became man? Can any of you explain to me how the sins of men and women can be actually imputed to Christ? How does that happen? Can you explain to me how Jesus hung on the cross as a beaten and helpless man, yet at the same time, He was the sovereign God of the cosmos that held the universe together. Can you explain to me how that works? Can you explain to me why Jesus left you? Can you explain to me why He went to the cross to die for you? These are mysteries. Mysteries which we must just receive by faith. And so even in eternity, isn't this a blessing to look forward to? That even in eternity there will still be an unveiling of the precious truths of the gospel and we will be eternally growing in our comprehension of Christ and Him crucified. When you get to heaven, you'll be able to go up to Jesus and you'll be able to say, Lord, there's something I've been trying to figure out. How did you become a man? Can you explain the hypostatic union to me, Jesus? And He'll explain it to you. You'll be able to ask Him, Why did you love me? Why was it for me that you came to earth and died? And I'm glad eternity is timeless because you'll never fully understand that. But see, the dreadful state of those who are lost in their sin is that they will never truly know the first thing about Christ and His gospel. And that should cause us to weep for the lost. We weep for the lost, not just because hell awaits them, but we weep for them because they will never partake of the bliss and the joy that comes from knowing Christ. If you sit here tonight without Christ, you're not just missing out on fellowship and friendship and church membership. You're missing out on knowing Jesus. So we pray that God would reveal Himself and make Himself known and manifest Himself to sinners who don't deserve to know Him that He might be glorified in the displaying of who He is. That is our message. That's the content of our our gospel that has been given to us by God. 
We preach Christ. We preach Him crucified. We audibly and intellectually proclaim Him. And then we pray, Lord, reveal these truths to their hearts. It's a disclosed message. And fourthly and lastly, for the description here, it is a definite message. Verse 7, at the end of verse 7. God, uh, Paul says, under the inspiration of God, which, talking about this message of Christ crucified, which God ordained before the world unto our glory. You must understand that the message of true wisdom is of divine origin. But you must also understand that it originated before the world ever began. The gospel is not something that God concocted as time went along. It's not as if God was sitting in heaven, He had created Adam, and He thought everything was hunky-dory, and then Adam fell into sin, and God was wringing His hands and pacing the streets of gold, thinking, well, what am I going to do now? It's not something that God designed in response to the actions of men and women. The death of Christ and the gospel of Jesus was not plan B or plan C or plan D. It was plan A. It was plan A from eternity. Christ crucified is the one and only eternal plan of God. Right here in verse 7. It was ordained before the world. Why people would fight this truth tooth and nail, I don't understand. Because this is a glorious truth. This truth tells me that God ordained to send His Son into the world before He ever created the world. This truth tells me that God ordained Christ to be the Savior of men before any men were ever created. This truth tells me that before there was even a sinner, there was already a Savior. What man could have ever come up with this plan? What what mind of man could have concocted such a religion? When God ordained the cross, He did not take into consideration the actions, the choices, or decisions of men. Rather, He ordained the cross, and then He ordained all the affairs of men to accomplish His plan and His purpose. This is a level of sovereignty that we can scarcely understand. We can barely wade into the depths of God's predestinating might. All of the precious intricacies of the gospel were predetermined by God. That's what the Bible says. God the Father appointed the number of lashes that His Son was to receive. God the Father determined the specific amount of thorns that were to compose the crown that our Savior wore. Not one hair was plucked from His beard That wasn't ordained of God. This is the exhaustive, predestinating sovereignty of God. I was listening to to a a preacher one time, if we can call him that. He was preaching about the gospel and the, the crucifixion of Christ. And he said something to the effect of, well, what a coincidence uh, that... When Christ was on the earth, what a coincidence that they just happened to want to crucify Him and then God saw that they wanted to crucify Him and God thought, well, uh, I guess I can use that to save sinners. I'm glad we don't serve such a weak and pathetic God that He has to wait around on sinners to accomplish His purposes. Our God sits in the heavens 
And he doeth whatsoever he pleaseth, the Bible says. I'm emphasizing that so that nobody can say, well, the preacher said it. No, the Bible says it. That God ordained the gospel before the world. Not only did he predestinate the execution of the gospel plan, but he also ordained its accomplishment. What was its accomplishment? The gospel accomplished the salvation of everyone who had come to believe in Christ. Verse 7. Ordained before the world unto, for the means of, in order to accomplish our glory. God purposed in eternity to pour out divine wrath upon Jesus Christ in order to ensure the salvation of those who believe on Him. You are not saved by accident. God did not redeem you by chance. But in the eternal counsel of heaven, God elected Christ as the Savior of sinners and simultaneously elected sinners to be saved in Him. And you were oblivious to all of this. You knew nothing of the grace of God that He had purposed for you until the day of your conversion. Perhaps you've been aware of what God has done for you for a few years. For some of you in this room, it might be only a few months. For some of you, it might be several decades. But understand that God... Let me phrase it this way. There's never been a time in which God did not know what He had purposed to do for you. God chose to save you before the foundations of the world, friend. You were on His mind before you were ever born. As you lived in rebellion to Him, He had a perfect love for you. Does that truth not break your heart? How could you still sit in the pride of your sin knowing that while you were running hard to chase after those things which God hated, God had a love purpose for you. Jesus did not come into the world to save righteous people. Jesus did not come into the world to save good people. Jesus came to save those who hated Him. And you were on His mind when He went to Calvary's cross. Your name was written on His hand as the nails pierced Him. You were on His heart as He gave His life as the substitution for sinners. The gospel message ordained of God is the foundation for your conversion, your sanctification, and your future in glory. All that you could ever need is flowing from the abundancy of Calvary. Your salvation was not left to chance any more than the crucifixion of Christ was. What does that mean? That means I can say to you with full confidence, as surely as Jesus died on the cross, was buried and rose again, you shall be saved from your sin if you believe upon Him. There's no luck involved. There's no chance involved. Jesus died as a matter of fact. He died and He rose again. And just as sure as that happened, if you would repent of your sin and receive Christ as your Savior, you would be saved. This is the description of our message. It's a discriminate message. It's a divine message. It's a disclosed message. And it's a definite message. And now, quickly, we'll look at the demonstration of this message in verses 8 and 9. Like any good preacher, 
Paul's now going to give us two illustrations to support his claims. One is a practical example. The other is a scriptural example. Look at verse 8. Again, speaking of the gospel, Christ crucified, he said, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. We see this reference to the princes of this world, those first century Jews who rejected their Messiah and demanded that Jesus be put to death. And the reason why they did such a wicked thing was because they were oblivious to the wisdom of God. Had they understood who Jesus really was and what He came to do, they would not have crucified Him. Now do you see the divine irony here in this verse? Christ must needs have been crucified in order to be the Savior of the world. But had the Jews realized that He was the Savior of the world, they wouldn't have crucified Him. Therefore, by trying to do away with Jesus through the crucifixion, they were actually accomplishing God's predestinated plan of redemption. God hid His wisdom from them in order to accomplish salvation. God used their rejection of the gospel to accomplish the gospel. Who but our God can do that? What man could ever come up with such a plan? The sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man, there's no contradiction. They're absolutely parallel. The Jews were responsible for rejecting the gospel. They were held accountable for not knowing the identity of Christ. They were also used of God to crucify the Messiah in order that He might save the world. God sent His Son into a world cursed with sin, knowing that this sin-cursed world would reject and crucify Him. And He then proceeds to use the death of His Son to save the sin-cursed world. And He hides His wisdom from some, and He reveals His wisdom to others in order to accomplish His predestinated purpose. Is He not rightly called in verse 8, the Lord of glory? Though He's a fool in the world's eyes, yet in the eyes of God and in the eyes of those who truly know Him, isn't He altogether glorious? And friend, do you realize that verse 8 describes you? Do you realize that there was a time when you were oblivious to the wisdom of God? Prior to your conversion, had you been alive 2,000 years ago, you would have been right in that crowd. Crucify Him! Crucify Him! you would have hated Him just like everyone else did. You loved your sin. And you hated righteousness. But then came that moment in time when God began to move towards you in overwhelming and irresistible grace and He caused you to see Christ in a way that you'd never seen Him. And your spiritual lights were turned on and God revealed His Son to you in true wisdom and you saw Him as the Lord of glory, the Savior of sinners, the Sovereign Lord over all. And then by the power of the Gospel, what you understood to be true wisdom radically changed. And if you don't know Christ in this way, if you don't know Him as the Lord of glory, you are lost in your sins. You must see Him as the Lord of glory. And lastly, verse 9, we see a demonstration of this message from Scripture. 
Paul says, but as it is written, referring back to two portions of the Old Testament, he kind of gives them in a paraphrase, pulling out the thrust of the, of the text. And this is not a reference to heaven, by the way, though I know it's often preached that way at funerals. The context has not changed. Paul is still talking about the gospel and its effects. I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. Natural man could never discover these things on his own. This heart of stone that we have by our father Adam could never perceive the plans that God has for His people. In order to see these things, in order to receive Christ, in order to know God for who He is, you must be born again. And if I were you, sitting on the pew, and I had never come to perceive these glorious truths about Christ and His gospel, I would be calling out to God from the depths of my heart. Right now where you sit, I would be begging God to reveal Himself to me. I would say with Moses, Lord, show me Your glory. And even if you are a Christian and you're struggling with living the Christian life, and you're thinking, what is it that I need so that I can be a better Christian? What you need is not a 12-step plan. What you need is a greater understanding and a greater revelation of Jesus Christ. All of us have need to pray this prayer. Lord, reveal Yourself more and more to me. More about Jesus would I know. But if you instead settle for worldly wisdom and human philosophy, you will forever seal your fate as one who is opposed to the person and plans of God. You will align yourself with the princes of this world who crucified the Lord of glory. Perhaps some of you hesitate because you believe that Jesus died for sinners, but you aren't sure that He died for you. We don't shy away from the doctrine of election or the doctrine of definite atonement. But perhaps you're, you're, you're giving intellectual assent. You're saying, yes, I believe Jesus died on the cross for His people, but I am not sure that He died personally for me. Well, let me encourage you with two things. Number one, the Bible never says to sit around and try to figure out if you're elected. It just isn't in the Bible. The Bible says to all people, repent and believe upon the Lord. That's what the Bible says. But number two... The Bible tells us right here in verse number 9 who these people are. The things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. So the question you need to ask yourself is not, did God choose me? Did Jesus die for me? The question you need to ask yourself is, do I love Him? Do you love Him? How simple a question, yet how, so, how profound, how basic, yet there has never been, nor there will ever be a more important question. What is the greatest commandment of all, Jesus said? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your strength, all your soul, all your body, all your mind. Do you love Christ? Is He glorious to you? Is He lovely in your eyes? Do you love Him above everything else, above everyone else? Does your heart have this passion for the excellencies of Christ that are uncomparable to anything else you desire? 
If so, then rest assured that you did not acquire this perception of Him on your own. But that is the fruit of God working in you. Because God has prepared Christ as the Savior for them that love Him. What a privilege. What a blessing it is to love Christ. To love Christ. Do you love Him? This is the message. This is what we must preach. This is what you must believe. The gospel of Christ is discriminate. It is efficacious only to those who see Christ as He is and love Him. The gospel of Christ is divine. It is God's gospel. It is God's perfect plan. It is flawless in its design. It is immaculate in its execution. It is God-ordained. The gospel of Christ is disclosed. You have the fullest revelation of Christ that you will ever have in this age sitting right in your laps. Everything you ever need to know about God in this life is right in front of you. And the gospel of Christ is definite. Christ has accomplished all that He has purposed to do. He has fully atoned for all the sins of all those who believe upon Him. Therefore, you can run to Him. You can flee to Him, knowing that He has made full provision. Do you love Him? Do you believe upon Him? Have you casted yourself at the feet of the Savior? Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We confess that it is the true wisdom of God, ordained before the foundation of the world, fully accomplishing everything that it was purposed to do. Help us to love Christ more and more, to desire Him more and more above all. Those other things in our life which would come before our faith in Christ. Oh Lord, would you rip them out of our hearts that we might make more room for compassion and love for the Savior. We love you, Father, because you first loved us and we thank you for the word of God and the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.